<laughs> Actually, I got my own off-topic story that I, I'd like to share that I don't think will be part of the show. Sure. I had a meeting today with some local Apple reps. They were going to go through and, and bless or curse this iPad app that I'm going to be writing for our client. And so there were three of them. And I meet the first one. Hi, I'm Casey Liss. Hi, I'm Casey Liss. The third one says, oh, wait, wait, wait. You're Casey Liss? You're that Casey Liss? Uh, Yeah. Oh, man, I've been listening to your show for like a few weeks now. It's really good. You know Marco and John? And so <laughs> I was like, holy shit, this is happening to me now. This is I'm so used to being around you two idiots where everyone out of, you know, comes out of the woodwork at WWDC and is like, oh, wait, 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 wait. You're Marco? Or you wait, wait, you're John? That John? And so then it happened to me. And it was really freaking weird. I don't know how you guys do it because I was like kind of creeped out, but also really appreciative. And just, it was it was weird. It was weird. And yeah, see God. now at WWDC this year, people are going to be coming up to you and showing their support for the white car Subaru cause. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully so. You're going to hear yeah. every story from everybody who's ever had a Subaru telling you how great it was and how wrong John and I are for not yeah. caring for them that much. They're such... Souls, nobody likes them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God, don't include this in the show. <laughs> so um, we do have some follow-up, right? Yeah, we have a little teeny bit of follow-up. Uh, but if you'd like to start the follow-up, that's fine. I got a really great one, actually, um, a while ago. Well, you know, relatively speaking, um, from uh, Alexander Hoffman. And, you know, we were talking in episode two about uh, car costs and affording cars and and, you know, a, a nice sports car might be twice as much per month as, as a more um, average pedestrian car. Um, so he said, I know that many people will say that if it costs twice as much, it had better be twice as good. But that's a fallacy. In fact, that original amount, for example, 250 may be a steal, providing far more value than the cost. The second half does not need to match that value proposition to be rational and or reasonable. It doesn't need to be the same steal in order to still be worthy. Look at the example of jeans. The first $50 to most people definitely provides more value than the next $50. But a better fit and being more stylish is imaginably worth $50, even if not to you. No need to claim that $100 jeans are twice as good. They just need to see that the next $50 actually buys something worth at least $50 to you. Same for the next $250 for the car. So I think that's interesting. I mean, he's, he's right. Like, you know, a $500 a month car doesn't have to be twice as good as a $250 a month car. It just has to provide $250 a month worth of value to you. Yeah, but but $250 worth of value is twice the amount. <laughs> I mean, it's just semantics, really. Like, if it, costs a, if it costs a certain amount and then you add that same amount, you you know, yes, it has to be worth the additional amount. But that's also a doubling because it happens to be, you know, twice the previous number. It's a different way of looking at it, I suppose, because double sounds like maybe different, but like I think it's just semantics, isn't it? That's kind of how I look at it. And I mean, to it, to build on that, if you consider that the zero to two hundred and fifty dollars a month got you all the way from your Doc Martins to something that will drive you down the road, I mean, what is the next two hundred fifty going to do that even puts it on par with being that much better than your sneakers? Does that make sense? Well, you know, it's, it, it's it's an upgrade. It's it's. You know what he's saying is like it doesn't you know to be worth it to somebody it doesn't have to be twice as good as the base price it just has to provide that interval worth of value to you so right. it, so you know for me it's like I have to have a car anyway you know I just, I need a car for for my lifestyle and what I do and where I live so I need a car so the cost of the car is kind of like non-negotiable right I have to have a car and so I could have a basic car for maybe 300 bucks a month so that would fit my family and not be horrible and, and everything. Um, so I have to then say, all right, is it worth an extra 250 a month to rather than having that car to have this awesome car? So is it worth 250 a month, period? Like what I'm paying for the base car is less relevant because I have to have that anyway. I'm not saying you know, this has to be twice as good. Cause it's like, to me, it's like that, that's kind of already a sunk cost. Like I, I have to have a car period. Is it worth two fifty more a month for me to have this nice car? 
Yeah, but you could extrapolate that even further and say, well, whatever you think is the bare minimum doesn't have to be $250 a month. You know, the bare minimum, to, to use a silly example, the bare minimum 335 new is, God knows, you know, several hundred dollars a month. But, probably about 700 you know, probably. Something like that. But a bare minimum Civic or, or Yugo, if they were still new, I mean, you could, you could, you could buy a Yugo for a $20 bill, for God's sake. So, right, but, then, but how much would you have to put into it to keep it running? No, and that's a fair point. I mean, I, I guess I, I see both sides of this argument. I tend to agree more with John that this is kind of a semantic thing. But you're, you're right that if you consider the first X, be that 250 or whatever, to be a given, then at that point, it's just a matter of what do you think? Does the remainder actually provide that much value to you? And obviously, what provides value to me may not provide value to you. For example... You know, a brand new Jeep Wrangler may be a, a lot more expensive than the baseline Civic or whatever. And if I go off road a lot, that's important, but it's not who I am. And I don't give a crap about that stuff. So instead, I bought a 335, which goes quickly and handles well and is cushy and things of that nature. And so, is white. And is white, which is a perfect segue to some of my follow up, Marco. Thank you. Uh, I don't have any one particular name because I got several pieces of feedback about this. And actually, after episode two came out, which is a little weird, but uh, several people said to me, or us really, hey, one of the reasons that people buy white cars is because if you live in, say, the Southwest or in Florida or somewhere like there, where the sun beats down and, and bakes your car for hours on end, having a white car is the difference between getting out of that car drenched in sweat or getting out, if, as it would be in a black car, or getting out of that car moderately comfortable if you have a white car. To be fair, that is not at all why I bought any of my white cars, but that is a somewhat valid argument. Is it really? I mean, like, I know it makes some difference, obviously, that you know, whether the car's body panels are very hot or simply hot. Um, while it's like sitting around in the sun, but doesn't a lot of the heat on in the interior of a car come from the light being let in through the windows? That's yeah, my understanding. The, the roof, the roof has a factor too, because you are like if the roof is absorbing versus reflecting. But I, I say that like the colors of the interior are, are more about that. So if you have black seats versus having white seats, that will probably make more of a difference for your comfort because you're touching the seats versus uh, just having a white roof and that's reflecting the, the you know more of the. That lights energy, sunlight's energy from the top, uh, you know, instead of a black one. But like, I don't really care how hot the hood gets, you know, because you wouldn't think that's going to affect the interior temperature as much or the trunk lid or whatever. It's really, and maybe the door panels. Uh, but people who are, uh, Casey's right, people who sent an email, they were all from hot climates and they all said, oh, you got to buy white. Now, I don't know if they've actually tested this, but presumably they live there and uh, they believe it whether it's a uh, a real thing or not. It's kind of like those uh, coffee Julie things. You should get someone down there to get two <laughs> identical cars, preferably with the same color interior, but one white, one black. That's going to be hard in itself because they usually give you different interiors of those very different exterior colors and, you know, do some actual tests with them in the sunlight and see how it goes. Yeah, but who's, who are we going to get to go to Florida? Not to be Florida. <laughs> I mean, any, pl any place in the, uh, the sun belt. Nobody wants to go to Florida. Uh, someone's, someone on this podcast has relatives who live in Arizona, I'm sure. Actually, yeah. Yeah, but we're not going to bring our cars there. <laughs> okay, Grandma, buy two cars, all right? One white, one black. Same color. You know, I'll tell you what. When, when, I was, when I was last in Arizona, I rented uh, – this, by the way, I hate this so much. Whenever I have to travel somewhere and rent a car, I always try to get something reasonably fun. And so you go to, like, Enterprise or Budget or Hertz or whatever, and uh, they always have, like, the premium sedan category. That's usually what I opt for because it always says – Nissan Maxima, Chevy Impala, or similar to describe this category. And the first time I rented a car of this category, uh, they gave me a Mini. And I was like, uh, it, it was for a Christmas trip that we were taking upstate from Brooklyn. And I was like, I, I don't, this isn't really going to work. Well, this is our premium sedan. <laughs> okay. Well, the stuff I'm bringing won't fit in a Mini. This is nothing like a Maxima or an Impala. It's not, not even close. Just because it cost a little more, they called it a premium sedan. So, and we can do a whole episode on the mini. But uh, so I, I had I convinced them to give me anything else they had, and the only thing they had was a giant white SUV, which I had to drive that <laughs> for a week, which is ugh, terrible. But um, so when I went to Arizona, the premium sedan there, so hoping for a Maxima. Nope, get out there. It's a black Avalon. The Avalon is. It's surprisingly unfun 
but it was actually a really nice car. Like I, throughout the week, I, I you were surprised by an Avalon not being fun. Yeah, I was going to jump it, on that too, and I thought I'd just be quiet. I the Avalon is the Japanese old person's car. They said, "What do old American <laughs> people in America like to drive? Those big boaty cars with a bench front seat. We can make one of those, can't we?" And they said, "All right, here you go." <laughs> I, I was more surprised because it was actually like. I didn't mind driving it relative, like you know, relative to the rest of Arizona. Arizona is a weird place to begin with. Um, like one of the, well, so I didn't mind driving it, but it, it, it's actually a pretty fast car. It just was not fun at all and had no feeling. But I, I just, I, I wish that rental agencies would rent you specific models. Like that's one of the reasons why I like Zipcar so much, because you you pick the exact model of car that you want. Even you even pick the color. I mean, like you you pick exactly the one vehicle that you are renting. And so you know in advance what you're getting into. You can you have some control over that, you, and you can see what's available in like different Zipcar garages and parking spots. Whereas with rentals, they always have those those crappy categories, and you never get what you want. Have you have you ever rented a car and gotten something that you were very happy with? I haven't. I'm happy when it doesn't smell. <laughs> <laughs> I have low standards. So please don't don't let it smell like someone smoked in this car when they weren't supposed to. Don't let someone have left a you know a cup of coffee or milk in the back seat and had it bake in the sun. I just want it to be clean. I want it to run. That's it. I can get behind that. All right. Do we want a? Uh, do you want me to pitch a topic here? Is that that sounds kind of dirty? All right. Well, before you do that, I had, I had one piece of follow up. Oh, please I'm do. To organize here, we're talking about dual clutch versus single clutch, and I, in typical fashion, uh, did not remember the details of which supercar maker was sticking with single clutch versus dual clutch. Uh, and was talking about uh, how you know the dual clutch, the single clutch is more harsh, you know, uh, than the dual clutch. But they don't care that it's harsh if you're making a supercar. So Robert Stewart wrote in to say that, and I was saying that it was because the single clutch was faster. And he said, really, dual clutch transmissions shift faster, provided you're going into the gear that the computer thinks you're getting into, because uh, they have that uh, this, the second gear all ready to go and queued up for you if you're if you're shifting in a predictable pattern and. I think this was his email. I'm looking forward in the text here while I'm reading it. But it was him or someone else was talking about how single clutch has the advantage of being uh, predictable. It doesn't matter what gear you shift into or when or what any computer thinks you're going to do. The shifts always take the same amount of time versus a dual clutch where if the transmission doesn't know, didn't expect you to downshift at that moment, it's going to take longer than a single clutch because it wasn't uh, ready with the gear preselected in the little second gearbox. And the other thing was that uh, a single clutch a single clutch has more surface area on the on the uh, the clutch plates so it can handle more torque so it's easier to get one to handle a lot of power although then he says in the same email that lamborghini apparently has high torque dual clutch transmissions in its cars so it might just be a matter of whether like ferrari has developed that or not and lamborghini hasn't but anyway single clutch versus dual clutch not as clear cut as it was made to be in the last episode and actually building on that um you had talked about well who is it that has single clutch uh gearboxes to this day and um, by way of the first episode of Top Gear, uh, I was reminded that the Pagani Huayra uh, has a single clutch automated manual. And actually, I glanced at Wikipedia right beforehand, right before we recorded. And it says the choice not to use a dual clutch in oil bath was because it would lead to an increase in weight of over 70 kilograms or 150 pounds, uh, negating the advantage of the ability of, smooth, of such transmissions to change gears faster. As a result, the entire transmission of the, of the Pagani Huayra weighs 96 kilos or 210 pounds. Yeah, I thought they said that on the episode as well. They yeah, some to that effect. Weight savings was the reason they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to spoil that episode, but it was, uh, it was a good one oh, for people yeah. to watch. Although yeah, I, I still think that car is hideous. I think, it, I think it became less hideous with this update. Uh, I think it got worse. Uh, you know, I, not, I'm not never a looker. I'm actually not that big of a fan of the mid-engined um, proportions. Like I, like the way the way you have the, the the space from the driver's back of their head to the back of the car, you have that so much longer usually than from the driver's head to the front of the car. Uh, I kind of don't like those proportions. You know, seriously, you, you've mentioned in past shows how that looks exotic and people like that. Um, I don't really. I mean, maybe just because now that's weird to me because I hardly ever see it, but I don't think it looks better. From the outside or from the inside? From the outside. No, I like it. I mean, it depends on the car. I certainly don't like it on the Huayra, but I like it on, <laughs> I like it on most other cars. I like, I like those proportions. Squarespace is a do-it-yourself website platform that makes building a website extremely easy. 
The designs that Squarespace start you with are both beautiful and simple. All you have to do is add your content and you will have a great looking site. Squarespace sites also include responsive design, so your website will automatically resize and show up perfectly on any device. Every account comes with cloud hosting, real-time analytics, a free domain, and 24-7 support. So whether you're a creative professional, business owner, or simply need an online presence, Squarespace makes it easy. Our site, Neutral.fm, was created in just 15 minutes on Squarespace. Check out a free trial at squarespace.com. If you decide to continue with your site, Squarespace is only $8 a month. And use the offer code NEUTRAL2 at checkout to get a 10% discount. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. All right, so this might be a multi-part episode, which I'm sure is making both of you rumbles already. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, a specific portion of tech in cars. And specifically, I wanted to talk about why I think the iDrive and equivalents are significantly better than a touchscreen. So let me start by asking John, does your dad's 328 have navigation in an iDrive or not so much? No, it predates that, I believe. Okay. Now, have you played although, with an iDrive although, ever? What year is yours? Yours is 2009? Mine's an 11. 11, yeah. I think his is like 8 or 9 or something. But no, I have not played with an iDrive. I've only I've only read about it and seen pictures. I've never actually used it. I've, I've seen videos of it being used, but I've never actually tried to use it myself. All right. So for all I know, this may end up being a 30 second topic, but the, the reason I be. wanted, <laughs> the reason I wanted to bring it up was because when I bought the, the 335, I had expected to hate the iDrive. Again, like I've covered many times, it just so happened to be the right car at the right, car, at the right time. And so I got it with the iDrive thinking, well, you know, it can't hurt. And a lot of the reviews I read, which as it turns out, were from a prior edition or version of the iDrive. A lot of the reviews I read said it was a piece of garbage, and I went into it kind of expecting it to be a piece of garbage. And what I've found is that I actually really, really like it. And I think part of the reason I like it is because I like having that tactile and tangible mechanism to manipulate what's on the screen rather than having to reach my arm out and try to touch the dashboard. And this becomes doubly important if you happen to be going down the road and you're bouncing because, you know, roads are not perfectly flat. And so I meant to look up the physics term behind what this is, but I guess like the moment arm or what I'm butchering this, but whatever, don't email me, whatever it is that causes the distance that your finger travels to be considerably longer or, for, or larger than the distance your shoulder travels, that makes using a touchscreen when you're in a car driving down the road really, really hard. And what I love about the iDrive is, in case you're not familiar with it, there's a circle that's, that, that's, I don't know, about the size of the hockey puck apple mice were. And you can t spin that circle in order to move up or down. And then you can push that whole circle down in order to say, okay. And then additionally, you can take that whole circle and shift it left, right, or up or down in order to do kind of higher level operations. And so what's really nice is you have this tactile and tangible feedback and it's at it's right behind the gear shift. So it's right where you want it to be. And we could talk about the software here in a second, but I just think that it, it struck me after using it for a month or two that this was so much a better approach than having to reach out and touch a touchscreen, no matter if it's iPhone-like with swipes and pinches and zooms, no matter if it's a 75-inch touchscreen like some of the new American cars have, or if it's a little tiny touchscreen. It just seemed better to me. And, and I don't know, Marco, if you have experience like i don't remember if tiff's car has nav or not and, sure it, and whether or not it, and whether or not it's a touchscreen so i'm, I'm sure really looking is. for you to, <laughs> i'm looking for you to tell me either i'm nuts or that i'm right so i i think i'm sure john will disagree with me i think you're 100 percent right on everything you've said so far uh on that topic at least still not crazy about the white subarus <laughs> but um you know i so so my i i currently because because I've had a a, a, a quarter life crisis, I, I currently own three vehicles in, in our household. Uh, we have we have my three twenty eight, we have Tiff's IS two fifty, and I have a one M. And that's a, a, a whole separate topic right there of of the benefits and drawbacks of having multiple cars per person. Um, but so my three twenty eight doesn't have iDrive. The, the one M does, and Tiff's. Uh, IS250 has the, the Lexus touchscreen system. Um, and then 
recently I spent some time in my father-in-law's uh, new uh, Lexus uh, RX three fifty, one of the RXs, the, the you know the, the big SUVs, and uh, and that has a new system, which is interesting. So I drive with BMW is as you described a little kind of like iPod like wheel uh, next to the uh, gear shift, and that works pretty well. You know, there, it's limited in like things like entering text where you have to like you like move it. It's almost like picking a number from a rotary phone dial you, like to, to type in text you have to like turn the wheel around the circle and it points to a letter and then you pick it by pushing in so that's kind of that kind of sucks um other than that though i find iDrive very good because it's very it's very responsive you know when you move that wheel the selection you have on screen it's a very ipod like interface where you have you know depths of menus um, the selection you have on screen changes instantly. Even if the thing that it's changing has to load something, you get that instant, immediate user interface feedback that, that you know, your input was recognized. And the wheel itself also has notches. So when you're turning it, you know I turned two notches, it's going to go two spots. And sure enough, on screen it does. So there's all this feedback in the system that lets you know that you're in control and that it's responding to you, which is very, very important. Especially since you and the notches actually were a very good point that I didn't even consider. So this way you can glance at the screen, know that you're trying to go two notches down and look away from the screen, slide down two notches and commit and know, just like you were saying, know exactly where you are. Exactly. And so, so for TIFF's IS250, it has the Lexus touchscreen thing and, and not the current generation, the one from, from a year and a half ago, <laughs> two years ago, whenever that was. Um, and... Lexus always says, uh, as a result of me always going to car dealers as much as I can with my family members, and Tiff's parents having had a lot of Lexuses over the last 20 years or so, and, and Tiff now having one, uh, I've been to a lot of Lexus dealers, and, or I've been to a few a lot of times, and they always are bragging about how their system is, got, is getting faster, and, oh, this new one is way faster than the old one. I have yet to find one that I would consider fast. It's kind of like how desktop Linux is always getting better, but it's never good. Uh, you know, it, like it. Insert Android joke here, also. Um, you know, it's it's always on. The, it's always getting better, but you try to use it, and you're like, oh my god, this is terrible. So, the main problem with with Tiff's touchscreen is that it's just so ridiculously slow to respond to everything, and it also does not enqueue actions that you touch on there. So. If you are typing in the name of a street, if you type more than about one letter per second, then it will drop the excess ones. It will just ignore them, as if you didn't type them, which is not only very frustrating, but it's also a recipe for lots of errors, because you'll type in, say, three letters, the middle one will have been ignored, and now you have to backspace the, second, the third one that's now the second one, it's misspelling the street. And... I don't know. I don't know why they think this is acceptable. It is so infuriating to try to use it to just do a basic thing like typing in an address that actually BMW's stupid spinning around the wheel system to type in a word it might actually be faster most of the time because Lexus is just so incredibly slow to respond. And so that's that's the old system. The new system now that uh, my father-in-law's new SUV has in the the RX350, um, they've actually now moved towards kind of a hybrid, the, the, the hybrid point between BMW's iDrive and things like that. Like I know Audi has something very similar to uh, iDrive where they have like a little controller near the, near the transmission stick and a few buttons around it. And they have, Audi also has like a weird hand recognition thing. It's, it's kind of like, the, uh, like the, the, the writing area on a Palm Pilot where there's like a little square next to, their, next to Audi's little controller where you can, you can handwrite individual letters one at a time. And it will attempt to recognize them. I, I tried it in a dealership, and it I couldn't type in my own street name. I couldn't write it in. I, I tried their speech recognition. It didn't recognize that. I mean, I'm not the best speaker in the world, but you know, Siri has no problems with it. And so anyway, Audi's, <laughs> Audi's speech thing was terrible. Um, anyway, so the new Lexus system keeps the entire interface from the touchscreen system. It looks just like the touchscreen system on screen, but it's no longer a touchscreen now the screen is sunken in way deep, far away into the dash, almost like almost by the by the by the glass of the dashboard. It's it's sunken in way deep, and they've placed next to the uh, next to the shifter 
like this this kind of hockey puck like D pad controller, but it it behaves like a track point on laptops, those little eraser head nipple things. It behaves like that where you like you push this little controller around and it moves an on screen mouse pointer. Wait, seriously? Yeah, and that and you, oh. you pick the buttons on screen by moving this on screen mouse pointer from the stick down by your arm. It is, and it, this, this brings the worst of all systems together into one. It has, and the interface looks exactly the same. They really didn't seem to do any rethinking of the interface as a result of this massive, differently, massively different new interface. Um, it's the same interface that I've seen on every Lexus and, and many Toyotas since then. Um, and it's just, now you have a mouse pointer and a little mouse-like thing that you have to use to control it from the stick. I, I don't know what they were thinking. That sounds terrible. It really John, I'm, is. I'm, I'm waiting, John, for you to, to level the two of us and drop some well, sort of bomb. You know, just because I haven't used the iDrive, it's certain, that's certainly not going to stop me from having an opinion about it. Naturally. So <laughs> here, here uh, if I had a thing with iDrive, the current version, I think my first complaint would probably be uh, because I have very long arms and because the thing is set back behind the shift lever, uh, I would probably complain that I bump my elbow when I'm trying, like trying to reach backward for it, because it, when, when I push my arm backwards and my arm hit my the back of my tricep hits the seat back, can't go back any farther. I have that problem, you know, with trying to shift down into like second or fourth or you know sixth. Well, sixth is a little bit farther out, uh, where shifters aren't far enough forward for my long, you know, forearm. So when I shift backwards, my elbow bumps. So I would, it would be a pain for me to have to reach behind the shifter for anything. Because like I said, even just shifting the second, sometimes I feel like I have to do the last bit of the shift into second with, with my wrists because I can't bring my arm back any farther, you know what I mean? Wait, can I, I save you with some real-time follow-up? Yeah, go ahead. Um, many of the new BMW models, including the new 3 and 6 series, put the shifter, or put the iDrive thing a little bit to the right of the shifter, not behind it. Yeah, that would be better for reaching. But uh, so for... And I, I, I like the I like the idea of the little, the little, you know, notches where you can tell how many steps you're going. But the main problem with all these systems... And I would agree that the thing with the cursor is like you know we can quote Steve Jobs if you see a cursor they blew it because I don't know what they I don't know what they're thinking there that's just terrible. it's bizarre yeah that's that's like when you go to the, the ATM at the bank and you see the little white Windows cursor on the screen you know bad <laughs> you know you know it's been a bad day at the ATM <laughs> or, or the OS two or whatever the hell remember when ATMs used to run OS two those were the days anyway the the main problem with all these things is that they are trying to they're trying to do kind of what Steve Jobs said uh you know with the like. If you make a phone and uh, we have to pick what kind of buttons we have on the front of it, we can never change that until we ship another phone. But if we make it all a screen, then we can have any kind of keyboard we want, a special keyboard for inputting, you know, domain names with a .com button and typing things and numeric keypad and all that stuff. So, you know, if we put a screen in and we just have some cool way to control that screen, you know, a sort of, you know, we can have some way for you to control it so you don't have to take your eyes off the road. So we got the little notches so you don't have to pick your, your arm up like Casey was saying with the hit a touch screen because it's harder to do that. You know, the track point people obviously weren't thinking of any of those things, but they just wanted to have a screen because they think it's cool uh, to have a screen. The, the problem with all of them, though, is that they all are worse for random access. Like, if I want to turn the fan off, you know, adjust the fan speed or turn the fan off, I can do that in my crappy non-screen bearing Hondas without looking every single time because the fan knob is big. I know exactly where it is. I don't need to look twist all the way off i can feel it when it hits the end it's the left i can feel how far halfway is i can feel how far full is no matter how easy it is for me to navigate some stupid menu system on a screen no matter how much i can kind of look at the screen and then turn the knob and then glance away or whatever it's never going to be faster than me reaching my hand out for the knob that never ever moves that only controls fan speed and twisting it now i know these things also have oh you know you don't need to do that on the screen i have there is a knob for fan speed there is a knob for temperature we do put physical buttons for the things but i always question like what kind of things am I going to be doing on this screen? Aside from just looking at it, obviously, for like navigation or something. uh, I think anything you do commonly should have a physical control. And there's very little I would want to be on that screen. Even things like turning traction control on and off. I'd rather have that as a button on the dashboard. Because as far as I'm concerned, like, it's a dashboard. it's It's a literal dashboard. Put the buttons on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like airplanes where there's like a million buttons. It's a car. Put... You know, put them on the steering wheel. Put them where they're easy to reach. That's the ergonomics of car interior design. I want every single control, even the obscure ones like cruise control, traction control, stability control, sport setting, or the little 
the, the the little switch on the Ferrari steering wheel to go for the different settings. Like, there's a place for those switches. Just put them there. They'll never move, and I'll be able to find them quickly, hopefully without looking, uh, and then I won't have to screw with any cabin interface that makes me move a cursor around a screen or navigate a menu or even touch a touch screen. And if you do that, then the screen can just be for display purposes and also... If you have to do something particularly complicated, it can work like a big iPad or something like when you're stopped trying to do like a video call with somebody or whatever. You know, so I, I think th- it's all about a balance here of of balancing between physical controls and these software-based systems that have menus and, and different formats and everything. And, and and different manufacturers have made very different decisions in this regard. Um, John, I think you would actually like BMW for this because there are physical controls for almost everything that you just mentioned. Um, I know. I'm looking at I'm looking at the interior of a car right now. Like, you know, they've they've gone back in the other direction. It used to be like, hey, we can just have a screen. Right. It's like, no, okay, well, we'll have a screen, but also temperature and fan speed. Okay, we'll have a screen, <laughs> but also temperature, fan speed, and cruise control. Audio. Okay, a screen, but temperature, fan speed, cruise control, and radio presets. Okay, a screen, but like, it's like you just <laughs> you're just reversing until you're eventually back to like. I feel like all the energy is going into these stupid screens, and they're doing a bad job with the software. You know, most of the car makers are anyway. Uh, they should just go back to concentrating on making a really good car interior where they decide what is the most important control, what's the second most, the third most, how easy is it to find and feel the buttons for cruise control or upshifting or anything on the steering wheel. And, you know, uh, my Accord has a comically large volume button in the dead center and top of the console. (laughs) Yep, I had that. Uh, uh, But the thing is, like, that is comically large, but, you know, it's kind of like the big A button on the GameCube controller, like, it's easy to change the volume without looking at the car. There's also steering wheel controls, but like, it's just, it's kind of nice to go, you know, you just, you're not going to miss it. You can tell exactly where it is and it, it, it feels good to turn it. Like that's, that's a good, you know, a good car interior has those kind of features. Maybe that's not the most important control, but I think that's what they should be concentrating on. Pretend there's no screen, make the most awesome car interior you can, you can now add a screen. And what additional cool things can you do with the screen? Obviously navigation and stuff like that, but uh, you know, if there really is some feature that's too complicated to provide in a switch form, I can't think of anything. Maybe if you could do some sort of complicated airflow control in like a minivan or something, and you'd want to have a touchscreen interface for that, uh, by all means, do it like that. But I do not want to, like, I don't think any kind of on-screen control should be so important that they have to put a control like iDrive like next to the shifter. Like, it's never going to be as important as the shifter. In fact, I would rather not be interacting with that screen while driving at all, if possible. And that's, I mean, I think, again, I think you'd be very happy with, with BMW's balance they've struck here, where where um, almost every common function that you would do, um, except like media navigation um, and, and navigation, <laughs> um, almost all those things can be accessed with the screen totally off or removed or anything. Because one thing is that BMW sells, uh, at least the previous generation, they sold without the screen. The screen was an option. Um, so <laughs> they had to make all the controls for everything. And, and, and But... And then, you know, Lexus has made very different choices here. Lexus's screen is a lot of the uh, temperature and audio controls are only in the screen. And when we're in Tiff's car, it drives me nuts. It, it, temperature is only on the screen? Yeah. That's well, crazy. Well, it's like that burns the car to the ground. Like you can, there's like a temperature up and down <laughs> button. That's that's a hardware button. But like a lot of the controls for things like, like fan air speed. On yeah, I think or? a lot of that is actually is, is screen only. And it drives me crazy. And... And then, and we 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 can't leave this topic without talking about the uh, the Tesla Model S. Are you familiar with the? Yep. yep. So mm-hmm. the Tesla Model S basically has, I think it's like an eleven inch or ten inch screen um, in the center of the console that controls pretty much everything, and there are almost no other buttons in the entire rest of the car. And and this has kind of been a design goal of theirs um, to to have almost no other buttons anywhere else and to put everything in this touchscreen, even things like, like the powered seat adjustment, like everything is in the screen and, and their rationale for this, which is kind of, you know, you, you can understand why they, why they thought this way. Their rationale was we make everything part of this integrated software system thing. And then it's easy to update. It's easy to make it better. We can even add features later on as long as the necessary hardware is, is available to us. Um, so that was a, a noble goal, I guess, but like I got to sit in one in a showroom in a mall, and I uh, can't actually drive them. But you can. I got to sit in one in a mall showroom, and uh, I just tried to navigate that screen a little bit. And it was because they were relying on the screen for everything. It was really complicated. Like the, it, it was a very cluttered interface, trying to look good and nice, but but it ended up looking very cluttered. 
and and they threw everything in there. Like you know, you could be trying to adjust your seat and accidentally open up a web browser. Like I, <laughs> I don't like it, it, they've they've yeah. went way too far in that direction. And, that screen uh, that yeah. screen serves more than one purpose though. Like the other right. pur- the other important purpose that that screen serves is to make you feel like you've purchased a futuristic car. And I and you know and. <laughs> That sounds cynical and like they're trying to pull a fast one on you, but I think that actually is legitimate purpose. Like someone's going to spend a hundred grand on the good, you know, Tesla Model S. They want to feel like they bought a futuristic car, and because we all grew up watching movies where the insides of cars look like this, they'll they'll you'll have happy customers who who like oh this feels like it. they'll show it off to their friends, right? right? Maybe they'll also be frustrated with it because it's a terrible idea and you needed some freaking knobs, but like especially for the first model out the gate of like the, you know, the, the four seat sort of, you know, non, uh, the, you know, not the roadster, not the, the little one they used to make based on the Elise. Like this is like their, their mainstream player or whatever here. Uh, I mean, they'll backpedal if they're still around for a couple more generations, that touchscreen is going, you're going to see some knobs or whatever, but it's kind of like the original Mac without the arrow keys, uh, on the keyboard, <laughs> yep. right? It's like, it's, it's a, it's a vision statement of like, this is the future of driving. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I'm making a statement about the future. We think not that they think so much the future is touchscreens, but they think electric cars are the future, so they're going to make their electric car look futuristic. Uh, but they got a backslide in that because it's just, you know, no matter how good, even if if you had Apple make that interface, the bottom line is it's a big flat sheet of glass that you have to look at to get anything done, and that's just no good. Well, and yeah, like it goes beyond the question of interface design, and now it's simply it's a question of of project management. <laughs> effectively, it's like like they they're asking this one screen to do way too much. And they could really benefit from a few buttons, and they won't do it. You know, so instead they're having this one giant screen. They're giving it the job of everything, and it's kind of questionable whether it's even possible to make a great interface to that. Yeah, because there's no there's no physical feedback. The, the place where I think the screens have have a place is, uh, and the Tesla does this as well, and a lot of other cars are are doing this is replace the thing that has all like the dials and everything. Fine, replace that with an awesome looking screen. It's sunken. It can be in a place where like you, you know. The brightness isn't a concern, like it's sunken in the dash, and make awesome-looking computerized displays for, you know, for speedometer tack, all that stuff. And I think some cars have done that. Was it the Lexus LFA that did this? Maybe Casey mm-hmm. would know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because regular right. needles couldn't keep up with the revving of the of the V10 engine they have in there. It would, <laughs> that it was would the rev, story. It would rev from, yeah. That's, I, I kind of believe it because, those you know, needles lag. You know, fit, you know, some sort of physical, actual gauge hooked up to the, the revs thing. It was always lagging behind where it was, where you can, whereas the screen can update... Uh, you know, instantly. So that type of stuff I think is great for display purposes, by all means, replace all those stupid dials with a real, but with like a retina, awesome looking, uh, high powered, very bright, high contrast, uh, display that shows cool stuff and sure. Update that with new software updates for cool speedometers and little things telling you your doors are open or whatever the hell pictures they want to put in there. But see, I'm not actually for... sure I would want that. Cause it sounds, it sounds like it would be a massive opportunity for them to screw things up. It is, but they can always fix. It. I mean, it's like it's like anything else. I mean, you've seen some of the physical dials. They they they're always they're forever screwing up uh, speedometer, tack, uh, fuel gauge. That's I mean, true. just look at the eighties. They're just everyone. You know, the, the linear speedometers with the bar graph. Remember those <laughs> the little segmented <laughs> things oh, yeah. and the oh, digital yeah. number. Like, yes, people will always screw up the stuff, and that's why people are like, please just give me dials back because at least dials are like tried and true. You can't really screw them up that much. Uh, maybe the worst thing you can do is put like a 250 mile per hour speedometer on your Civic and then you end up only ever using like, <laughs> you know, thirty deg- the first 30 degrees of the entire speedometer yep. where you spend your entire time. But uh, yeah, but a well done speedometer uh, based on a screen would be a good idea. But that that's where I think screens belong, not so much in the center console for anything except for like your navigation and map. Uh, and, and speaking of the media stuff, like that's a tough nut to crack and because... That's place where you can't get away with a tuning dial and presets. Like you want to be able to, you want to be able to scroll down to, you know, your favorite band or your favorite playlist or whatever. And the only way to do that without a touchscreen is to do some sort of voice recognition. And they're also forever trying to do that. And Apple has a new Siri integration with the various car makers and stuff. So they'll keep working on that. But it's a random access type thing where there's no physical control that's going to save you. It's like, look, you've got eight bazillion artists and twenty bazillion playlists. You know the one you want. There's no button you can push to get it because you just have too many of them. You're just going to have to scroll or speak or, you know, have your uh, – the, the best the best uh, interface to that I've found is just have a spouse next to you and tell them which <laughs> song you want. And then they will sit there on the iPod screen or whatever, find it, and play it. And you never have to take your eyes off the road. Spouses, highly recommended. 
highly recommend. Well, it's funny to to kind of go back and then forward a step. Um, uh, one of the things that I've learned about iDrive is that the the initial version that nobody liked, that everyone felt was crummy. Part of the problem they felt that was because there were so few buttons involved. And and like both of you guys were saying, with time they've kind of reverted to buttons. And so if you were to look at pictures of early iDrive systems back when it was the the CCC, the car communication computer. That system usually had only one or two buttons associated with it other than the iDrive stick or whatever it's called itself. Whereas the one that I have, and I believe it's the same in Marco's uh, uh, M, it's got the the spinner, the stick, whatever you want to call it, and I want to say five other, six, seven other buttons. So there's a button to go yeah. straight to telephone. There's a button to go straight to uh, radio, to go straight to CD, navigation. and to go straight to navigation. And then there's also a, a general home button and then there's, I think, a back and an option key as well. And that sounds really complex, but it actually makes it considerably easier. In typical and, BMW fashion, they, they've actually added way too many buttons for most people, but us nerds can yeah. figure it out. Yeah, and that's actually a very good point, is I'm curious what a non-dweeb would have to say about all this. And kind of to that point, one of the things that I discovered on my car is that it's got what appear to be six radio preset buttons. And because I'm a big enough nerd that I actually read the owner's manual once I got it in order to learn all these kind of obscure one-offs, you can actually have those preset buttons, rather than do radio presets, be presets to menus and things within the iDrive. So what I've done is I've set up to call Aaron, to call my wife as the very first preset. So if I mash down on the first preset, it'll call Aaron. The second preset, I think, sends me home. So, you know, it'll, it, it auto automatically has keyed in my home address. And so all I have to do is hit the second button, and it's going home. The third button, and this kind of also speaks to software updates, I actually had to get an op update for the car, a software update for the car. And with that which came... Which is hilarious. Which is weird. Uh, but with that came, now the car can actually communicate with my iPhone and show me text messages on the iDrive. Now, there's a pretty legitimate argument that I shouldn't be reading text messages on the iDrive, but be that as it may, the third button brings me to my messages. And then the fourth button I have, fourth, five, fifth, and sixth buttons I have for various other and sundry things. But I think having those buttons, both the ones around the stick to go straight to telephone, straight to nav, et cetera, as well as having those user programmable buttons in, that look like radio presets, that makes the iDrive that much easier to use. And the other thing that I really like having the iDrive for and this is kind of building on what you were saying, John, is, is for things that you can't just slam into a teeny tiny display on the dash. So in the BMWs, it has a, a little teeny uh, display in the dash. But for example, if a, if a tire gets low on pressure or if, if there's a alarm because it's cold outside, rather than just seeing a snowflake in the dash and assuming you know what that means, on the iDrive, it can say, hey, it's 37 degrees out, be careful. Or, hey, this right rear tire is low. You should drive 50 miles and no more. You should do it at 55 miles an hour and no more than that, as opposed to just seeing a picture of the car and a red tire in the back. And so having that, be, that feedback is really nice. And the final thing that makes it really, really nice is the integration with BMW apps, or excuse me, uh, BMW Assist, which is kind of like their OnStar. And so that avoids Marco's pitfall of doing the rotary phone address dialing because what I can do is I can go onto Google Maps, find an address, and actually have Google send that to the car. So it's waiting for me by the time I get there. And if I didn't have any one of these features, I'd probably still like the iDrive. But if all of those features went away, I think I'd hate it just as much as the early iDrive adopters did. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to briefly bring up is I don't know if you guys have looked into, this, into the Corvette C7, but John, that has the dash that you're describing where it's a completely configurable uh, dashboard, uh, dashboard, so you can have the speedometer and the tachometer, or you can have a G meter, or you can have many other things. And I think you can change so that in one view that the speedometer is huge and the tachometer is small, maybe if you're just cruising around. In another view, you can do the reverse because you're on the track and you care about how quick you're shifting, not how or when to shift, not how quick you're going. And I think you're absolutely right that really in a perfect world, that's where the screen belongs, not necessarily in the center of the car. I could not disagree more. Okay, why? Well, okay, so as a programmer, you know, as I said, like, it's one more thing to screw up. To expand on it a little bit, you know, as, as a programmer, generally speaking, I hate software. And I know that sounds weird, but, but the reason I hate software is because I know how hard it is to get software right. And I know <laughs> how many times, for how many products and services, the software is so bad and so wrong. And, and I drive, and, and all the navigation systems I've seen so far, I would not describe any of them as great. Um, in fact, I would have a hard time even describing most of them as good. I drive, I might, I might call good. 
Um, but you know, the reason why, you know, like you, before getting a BMW, I, I had heard all sorts of things about how horrible iDrive was. So I went into it with very low expectations. And I've been pleasantly surprised by it, like you, partially because my expectations were so low. Um, <laughs> but And partially because while, while it does have problems and things that don't make a lot of sense about it, um, it has fewer of those things than the other systems that I've tried. Um, and obviously, between the three of us, there are a lot of systems that we haven't tried that we can't really speak about. Um, there could, for all I know, there could be a great one. I just have never seen it. Um, but, and and I think it's unlikely. Honestly, I think that, I think the existence of a great one is very unlikely. Um, but I think the reason why I wouldn't want the the like gauge area of the dash to be just just a big screen that could be configured um, is because. There's a few things. One for for like visual ergonomics, whatever the right word would be for this. Um, I think it would be hard to make most screen technologies get dim enough to look okay at night. Uh, I think OLED might be the only choice here that would make sense. But then those have um, OLED screens have have pretty short lifetimes, relatively speaking, and uh, color shifts over time as as like the blue pixels fade and stuff like that. Like there's there's problems with OLED that would make it bad for something that you're supposed to own for, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, uh... <laughs> LCD can't do it. Like, getting dim is usually not the problem. The problem is usually the reverse, being able to be bright enough to be in, in readable and Right, I guess sunlight. that's the other problem. So, yeah. But, but, but dude, dim isn't a problem. But I think for the brightness, like, it's it's much better off than the LCD you've got for your navigation because you can really bury those gauges. Like, there's a hood over it. Like, they're protected. They're in a little cave. Uh, and I think technology is good enough now to make them really bright. And I, I think... Even for physical gauges, I'm sure we've all driven a car where the physical gauges during a certain time of day become not particularly visible. Like it's not, you know, when you turn on the headlights, like the backlight comes on, but they're not that visible. When you turn off the headlights, they're too dim. There's even for physical gauges, there's times of day where they're difficult to read. I think a, well, not a all. good display. Uh, I mean, it depends on what they are. You, you ever see the, the white on black, black on white reversing ones? That was a trend a couple, uh, a decade ago or so. Yeah, remember those? My, my Maxima had those actually. Yeah, and those work surprisingly well, except for for about 15 minutes during the day, they were a little wacky. But even right. regular ones can be a little bit weird. And I think, like, screen technology is at the point now where they can have less of a weird time because they can totally dynamically adjust much more so than just, well, we have a physical thing, and we can light it from the front, and we can light it from the back, and we can adjust those two lights, but that's it. Now we've got a complete RGB thing that you can really play with in terms of brightness, contrast, colors, everything. And you know, put throw a light sensor on it; it can detect what its surroundings are and everything. Well, I think if you if you go really far with it, and and you make it more like a computer or like an iPad or something, if you go that if you go so far with it that people can kind of make their own and customize and make their own themes and and make their own arrangements, That's then a waiting to exactly. So it, <laughs> if you could do that, then you could rely on people with good taste making these kind of things and post them online, so you could use something with. Design I, with I good think taste. that is the future, though. I mean, like it's it's like I talked about in that blog post recently. Like all these things that used to not have anything to do with software, like it's inevitable that software will become an important part of that. I know you're saying you hate it because you know how badly everyone does software, and that's true. It's because all these companies that used to not have to do anything with software or like do a minimal thing with software, like one guy off in the corner was working on software inevitably they will either go out of business or they're going to have to get good <laughs> at doing software because this thing they were making that used to be all about everything but software, software is going to become an important... It's kind of like safety. Like safety was like, yeah, whatever, you're fine. Okay, fine, we'll add seatbelts because they said we should. But now, like safety, like there's huge departments in every car maker dealing with safety and it's incredibly complicated and they've gained expertise in safety for everything from you know crash protection and the, and the bazillion airbags they're in and uh, pedestrian safety, so when you hit a pedestrian, they don't crack their skull in the hood of the car. Like, if you had said, oh, they, you know, safety, they're never going to be good at that. If we get, like, they, they'll have to gain expertise. So I think this is inevitable, and uh, you're right that most of them have been disgusting, but I think now <laughs> they've been doing these software dashboards displays long enough to, 
to do a competent job of them. Kind of like the iDrive thing where, like, you know, the touchscreen stuff. Like, look at the video Casey put in the thing here showing this Corvette one. Now, granted, the entire Corvette is, I would say, not tasteful, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's going to email you about that because I agree with you, but I wasn't brave enough to say it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the Corvette's thing, though, is and it's not, like, it's not trying to be understated and classy. It's like, no, this is a big red Hot Wheels car that you drive in. And the dashboard thing looks like that. And that's, I think that's a branding opportunity that they're taking, you know. You want to feel like a boy racer in this car? Well, here's a friggin' boy racer gauge cluster. Take a look at it. I mean, I think they're pulling it off. I mean, uh, you know, again, this is, I think this is the first generation where they're doing this really configurable thing. Uh, But, you know, give it five, ten years, and I think this will have settled down such that when you drive in your little Toyota Corolla with your LCD display thing, it'll be like, that's fine. Like, you won't, you know, when, when our kids are driving, they won't think for a second about the, the, the thing that they're looking at between this, the steering wheel could be any different than what it is. See, I don't know. Cause you know, I can see it going either way, you know, uh, it, going the other direction, what you mentioned earlier about how back in the seventies and eighties, whenever everything kind of went all digital and then we kind of stepped back from that. I think that same thing could happen here with these dashboard gauges and stuff um, over the next five or 10 years. Like we could be right now. The technology has finally become cheap enough that, a lot more cars can start adding it, and they are. Um, but then, like, you know, in five years, it's going to be very commonplace, and we're pro- we probably will have gone too far in that direction, and we're going to have to step it back. And the other thing is, like, this, to me, it's like, what the gauges have to do is a pretty simple job, really. Like, I I really have, have never wished well, for major of, changes in my gauges. But you're just thinking of what they do now. It's like Casey said. We're, well, yeah, we're, we're in the generation where when your oil needs to be changed, a little wrench light lights up in the dashboard or you know like the little picture of a car with this trunk open comes on and we're like yeah what else do you need to do well if you have a screen and not like well okay you've got seven seventy five square inches uh you have this many and indi- this is how much room you have for indicator lights and when this is wrong this light comes on and when this is long we just have an oil light or whatever like if you have a screen you could do so much better than that and i think it would look barbaric to say like you know Something appears on the screen that looks like a little wrench to tell you that you have to bring your car in or check the check engine light. Like the fact that there's light. Why would it just say check engine? Why wouldn't it be more specific? Like if it knows, you know, something's right. Well, you only have room for how many lights is, you know, look at your look at your dashboard and see all those little dimmed lights and the little hieroglyphics with no words because then it has to be localized and everything. That's that's what software is for to not have that to not have the million different little cut out light up things, uh, but instead to be able to just tell you. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, you're right. This is going to be some exuberance and ridiculousness. And I think like the Tesla is an example of that. Like, you know, not, you know, the first generation is always going to be silly. Kind of like, uh, the first generation of, uh, people who had access to word processors that, that could use fonts and they went crazy and every single newsletter had 8,000 fonts <laughs> in it. Right. But we, we settled down. Right. And we didn't settle down by going back to, you know, uh, movable type, right. <laughs> we settled down by just taking the tools that we had and, and getting them under control. So I don't think this is, it's not like physical controls versus museum. We're talking about something you just look at. It's just an information display. This is going to be a screen and the, there's not going to be any backsliding to gauges. Uh, well, I, I have, I have three counter arguments. One is that again, I, I really do doubt uh, that they will be tastefully designed. And I think that's a bad thing. Um, Some will eventually time. maybe, tasteful maybe in 10 years. So, so that's one. Number two is, you know, I think, Making this all software will inevitably make it more complicated and and more to deal with. Um, you know, like it, it's going to be there's, there's going to be some things that it's going to do worse than the gauges, at least for the first few generations, as the technology catches up to the old analog, the way technology always does. Um, like there's like maybe it'll be less responsive. Maybe these screens are just too too low resolution to look very good. Maybe they won't have enough of a of a brightness range, and they'll be either too bright at night or too dim in the day. Like there's going to be a lot of these problems. Number three is because it's because this thing is now software based. Um, you now will have more potential ways of failure here. Now I don't. I have rarely seen an important gauge fail in the first like 15 years of any car's life. <laughs> they they do eventually fail sometimes, but it takes a long time. And uh, you know gauges are pretty reliable. To, to give you a point of comparison, I have I have Nest thermostats in my house. And and one of the Nest thermostats, and you know the Nest thermostat is basically a round thermostat with a big round LED, uh, LCD screen in the middle of it that uh, is all software based. 
and it's all cool and computerized. Um, but now one of my thermostats has two rows of hot pixels. Now, that's a problem that most people never have. <laughs> most people will never have that problem of having to worry about dead pixels on their thermostat. Uh, I have that problem. My thermostats get software updates. You know, that's another weird thing I have to worry about. Um, like, there's there's more more complexity when you make something that was a simple device into a software computer device. And yeah, so you get, more, you get more features out of it too. I mean, that, that every, that's happened well, with yes. everything in our lives. Just think of your television. I never used to get software updates to my television when I was a kid. You turn the TV on, it got a picture, or it didn't. You adjusted the rabbit ears and you turned the dial from two to thirteen. And like, what? And then, oh, you're gonna add software. It's gonna be complicated. Now my TiVo gets software updates. Yeah, it's way more complicated and and flakier and more annoying. But boy, it does a hell of a lot more than my TV with the rabbit ears. And that's that's how. That's how technology goes. Like, yeah, it is more complicated. There's more things that can go wrong. It seems a little bit silly. It's different than what it used to be. But in exchange for that, you're getting something better. You're getting something better than the little wrench light. You're getting something better than the check engine light. And, yeah, you're getting something like that crazy theme where the little Corvette gauges fly out at you or whatever. That may seem frivolous, but people like that stuff. I mean, people like body cladding on their cars. Like, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't serve any purpose, uh, except for maybe for aerodynamics if you're lucky and someone actually thought of that when they made it. But like people like those type of things, so I, th I think it's going to happen, and I think it will be a net positive. It will allow the car makers who have bad taste to flaunt that bad taste, uh, but it will also <laughs> allow the car makers to, you know, it's like anything else. It will allow the car makers who want to have understated elegance to hopefully gain expertise so they can express their brand through through this screen. And I think that Cor the C7 Corvette, it's expressing its brand through that screen. We just don't like its brand, but like it's, it's expressing it. I would agree. And I would actually even double down on what you just said in the sense that having this software does enable some really fancy new things like a heads up display, which is actually a win in many different levels, including safety, because you don't have to look even as far down as your gauges in order to see how fast you're going or when you should shift or whatever. And another thing I wanted to just quickly bring up, which I which just melted my brain when I read it is I was building an M5 online just for grins and giggles. And, and I think this is true of cars other than the M5. But, it, but one of the options was M5's speed limit info. And I actually copied down verbatim what it said on the website. And it said, displays the posted limit in the in instrument cluster as well as the head-up display if so equipped, which in and of itself is kind of unremarkable. A special camera captures the speed limit posted on signs a control unit then processes this information together with the data on the onboard navigation system. Oh my God, are you kidding? So it's taking <laughs> pictures of the speed limit signs, matching up with what it thinks the speed limit should be and confirming that that is indeed the speed limit and then putting that on the heads up display. Just wait like that they, is just they, they cool. hook it into social networking so you can find out from other people where the speed traps are. I mean, that that's it's like true. for and legality. I'm sure there's already like iOS apps that do that, you know, where basically will tell you where the speed traps are because everyone else who drives through them. It's like it's basically the Internet equivalent of flashing your brights at somebody when you yeah, know you drive right. past them going the other direction. Only it's massively distributed. So those, those apps already exist for, for portable devices. If automakers could get away with putting them in and not being sued by like municipal police departments they probably would but like i mean it's it's like fighting the tide like, eventually once you know once we're just so accustomed to software just being like like right now basically we're so accustomed to software being on our phones so, like apps and software on a phone like that ship is sailed we're not gonna go you know what i would rather not have apps on my phone let me go back it's never happening right now we're just arguing about which apps eventually that'll happen on anything that has software and maybe not your refrigerator but certainly your car uh, cars, again, are going to be much slower because of all the legal safety concerns, but probably in our lifetime, there's going to be a way for you, our children or our grandchildren are going to buy a car, and it's going to have, assuming we still have speed limits in this country and haven't descended into a Mad Max-like uh, post-apocalyptic nightmare <laughs> world, there will be an app that will tell them uh, where the speed traps are based on the information that other people who have driven through there have told them. I think, going back a second... Um... You know, it's important to distinguish. You're, you know, you're right, John. The ship has sailed with a lot of this stuff. Um, going back a second, though, to to the speed limit thing, and and by the way, that is a feature on every five series, and I think even three series has most of those features. Um, and I'm sure other. I mean, I'm sure Audi has already copied it, and I'm sure other people have similar features. Um, I know, Mer I think Mercedes does. Anyway, um, I think it's important to point out, like software that's added to a car for convenience or driver assistance purposes 
is much easier to to approve of to say okay yeah that's a good idea let's let's have that as an option i object more when when software replaces something that was previously done in in a reliable way that worked fine like you know, the mirror keypad on your phone that kind of thing yeah <laughs> i mean but, but but again you would not give up your iphone if you could get you know what you'd be sacrificing if i really it's right. much easier for me to like the the reason that that went away on a phone is because uh, it said, okay, well, yeah, it's annoying to type in numbers on this thing, but you're not going to type in numbers. You're going to scroll to your wife's name and tap it with your thumb, and isn't that better? And you're like, oh, all right, I guess I don't need the numbers anymore. I, you know, there's always something you're trading in exchange for the thing you're familiar with. So I oh, think certainly. You're, I think I think you will be you will be happy with this transition uh, once it comes. Wait, well, until also, you, you know, ten years from now, your BMW that you buy then will have a screen instead of gauges, and I think you'll like it. I, I don't even think it's ten years. I think it's probably three years away. <laughs> But you know, I'm assuming you're not going to get a new BMW in three years. <laughs> oh, it's the beauty of a lease. You're going to be so. Oh, that's right. You're going to have to. I, no, but you, didn't you buy the one M? Uh, yes, but the one M uh, cannot be my only car because it does. It's not really family sized. Um, yeah. That that that'll be a whole other episode. One other thing, though, I do think it's important, or I do think it's interesting, that you know. So, so right now, BMW has these cameras. I know this is all about BMW, and everyone who hates BMW probably is no longer listening to this show. Oh well. Anyway, um, so they they put a camera in uh, basically the the front facing surface of the rearview mirror in the center, so it looks out from the dash. And this camera does a number of things. Um, I think it's the rain sensor. I'm not sure about that, but by by having right. by having this camera, at least you know if it isn't the rain sensor, it's next to the rain sensor. But by having the, by having a forward looking camera. In you know, looking forward at all times and, and with image processing software behind it, they've added multiple features. So one of them is that speed limit thing. One of them, I, I, the lane departure, I forget whether it uses the side cameras or the, anyway, might be lane departure. Another thing it added is the, um, the uh, headlight, the, the automatic brights thing, where it will automatically turn down your high beams or your brights if a, if a car is approaching and it it sees that it sees the, the the white lights in the field of view from the oncoming car, so it'll turn off your high beams for you and then turn them back on when the car is gone. That'd be a much better feature if it turned off the other guy's brights. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but like I, I think it's like they they said they said okay, you know, for for one or two features we have to add this front looking camera, and, and and now now with just simple software tweaks we can now do these other cool things with that information. So I think over time, that's going to be really exciting is as cars are getting these additional inputs and computers that are very sophisticated that can process things with these inputs and do clever things with them, uh, I think that's where we're going to see major, advan- major advances in safety and convenience and just cool stuff because you know software can be used there to great benefit without really losing much. You know, like what if the forward-looking camera, what if, if you had an accident – it saved the last 20 seconds of whatever was just happening for you. So you could look at it on video. Like, That's what everybody does in Russia because of widespread insurance fraud. Right. Like, like there's all sorts <laughs> of... The of... low-tech solution. Yeah, I've been actually amazed at how quickly that stuff is going because I'm always thinking about, because we're in such a litigious society, I'm always thinking about, okay, well, they'll do that, but they won't do this because they'll just get sued. But I'm, you, know, you mentioned all those things like lane departure, uh, the, the laser, radar cruise control, laser cruise control, now augmented with cameras. Volvo's got a car that will come to a complete stop to prevent you from hitting a pedestrian like without you doing anything. And then you know, eventually this all extrapolates out into Google self-driving cars. Uh, but the, you know, Google self-driving car is fine. Like that's California, that's Google, it's a limited whatever. But all these things like the Volvo thing and the things you're talking about in Mercedes and BMW, you can buy cars with that stuff now. And that's just like, that's not... Those aren't little things. Like they'll, I think the Volvo will actually steer for you too because they have electrical power steering and like your steering wheel is no longer connected, to, you know, to the wheels. And so they can, you know, they, they'll apply the brakes, they will turn, they will bring the car to a complete stop. Uh, that's, you know, t- talk about things that affect safety. The, the computer literally has control over the car, right? And I know how the, you know, a million fail safes and and you know stuff like that. But like they're fearlessly plowing forward with features that seem much more dangerous to me than. Uh, you know, something as simple as, oh, we have a gauge cluster that might be uh, slightly less reliable or whatever. So maybe this stuff will advance more quickly than I think. But like like I said, they were, you know, they were doing these things with the, you know, automatic distance following thing with relatively primitive technology. I think Mercedes' first system, I forget if their first system was laser or radar, but they use radar. it was primitive. It was like Cold War era, you know, silliness, right? 
no cameras, no anything like that. And like they did it and they pulled it off and I'm sure it was cruddy or whatever. But now they're like they're on their like sixth generation of that in their high end car. Oh, to be fair, so they still use know, radar. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure they have cameras <laughs> out the wazoo and those things, too. They yeah, do, it, may, yeah. it may still may still be radar, but I'm sure it is you know, much more sophisticated. Like what you want to see. I've always wanted this in a car. If you play a lot of video games, you know this. Driving in a video game when you are outside the car, like a third-person camera floating above, behind the car, it's so much easier to do things because you have, like, more situational awareness. You know if you're in a racing game, you know the guy's, like, behind you to the left going this speed. Like, you you can see everything around you, whereas when you're driving in the car, it's much harder to have good situational awareness about where the other cars are, where obstacles are, what their velocities are relative to you, right? So if you could have a display on the screen that would show you in no uncertain terms that there was like a you know a car coming up in the lane to your left going you know twice your speed and you were thinking about changing into that lane you know the computer can warn you that it's there you could see that it's there even just some sort of red light that comes on out of your peripheral vision you know maybe don't change into that lane now because you're going to get rear-ended at 80 miles an hour by this crazy person oh, they have that now it's and and I, it's very very popular and it's and it actually does i think save a lot of accidents yeah i know but i'm saying like that that type of stuff is uh the things you can do that with with screens and software that you just could not do with any sort of physical equivalent type thing, and you know, I've, yeah, the parallel parking thing is, yeah, that's. It, we, like I said, this leads to self driving cars. It's like, well, this Lexus will parallel park itself for you. Isn't that great? But you know, does that mean no one's ever going to learn to parallel park again? But then you can argue that no one has, no one knows how to do that now anyway. So it'll be a blessing. Yeah, and just think what it, we have to look forward to: a world of a bunch of Lexuses driving the way Lexus was programmed to drive. That will be, it will still be an improvement. I still say these <laughs> computers will drive better than the average human driver. Oh, what a terrible The only world possible exception, I, I was thinking the other day about uh, on-ramp merging algorithms. If I was the programmer, what kind of algorithm do you put in to get a car to merge onto a, a highway and not be annoying? I think that's probably <laughs> the, the greatest challenge. Not that a lot of people are annoying too, but computers like, yeah, they're gonna, that's going to be one of the harder things to work on. And then you're always going to have that one guy who's in some like ancient Buick who who <laughs> goes up the ramp at 30 miles an hour and goes to the very, very end of the entrance lane and just sways himself in there. Just as the lane ends, he just uses the lane marking like a funnel. Just <laughs> whatever's there, oh well. <laughs> well, it's yeah. better than the BMW driver that that passes that marker and then goes on the shoulder because he or she is more important than anyone else on the road. Well, then they get a flat tire from the debris that's on the shoulder. That's how that works. <laughs> Test out those run flats. Hooray. That's uh, it. You want to end it? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're good.